Well, as was mentioned here, uh, Pastor Matt talked a little bit about it. This is Sanctity of Life Month. And uh, somebody the other day said to me, oh, how appropriate. We're going to have the children's guy up uh, during Sanctity of Life Month. And I thought, well, yeah, I guess that's, that's true. Certainly, uh, I love children. And I love the children here at Harvest. It's um, a blessing in my life to know each and every one of them. They are indeed a gift of God. And they're a gift of God to their parents, to me, to us as the body of Christ. And they're precious in the sight of God. And they should be precious to his people as well. And yes, that includes the ones that seem to be deliberately trying to drive me insane or to push me to an early retirement. Every class, every Awana group has at least one of them, sometimes more. And if you're sitting out there and you're thinking, oh, more, is he talking about my kid? Fear not. There have been many, many before him or her, and Lord willing, there'll be many after them. And you know what? Uh, I love them and appreciate them as well. Now, some of you are out there thinking, well, surely not my child. My child is perfectly behaved. What could he possibly do or what could she possibly do to make you crazy? Well, let me give you an example. Many years ago here in one of my Sunday school classes in Awana groups, I had this awesome young guy, and he was just smiled all the time, happy-go-lucky little guy, very smart, very clever uh, young fellow by the name of Jared Zeeland. And Jared (laughs) would come bounding into my class, literally filled with energy every Sunday morning, and his glasses were always all cockeyed and cattywampus and broken, and and, uh, Jared would come in with this enormous smile on his face. Now, if you know Jared, he's always got a smile on his face. That's who Jared is. But that smile, that was about 75% pure joy and about 25% pure mischief. And it was the mischief part that often worried me because Jared would come in and look at me and what he was actually thinking, and I see him giving me this smile now, what he was thinking was, you don't know what I have in store for you today. And quite frankly, Jared didn't know what he had in store for me that day. We were both going to find out together And one day when Jared was little, Jared, you couldn't have been more than maybe seven years old, something like that, Uh, he was in my Sunday school class, and Jared found it necessary to uh, correct the theology of one of his classmates. And and he he, he did that occasionally, and usually he was right. But I was just about to tell Jared, you know, I'll do the correcting around here, Mr. Sealand, when he looks right at me, gives me the big smile, and says, isn't that right, Bill? And he says, that's your name, right? Bill. (laughs) So now, you know, the words that I was about to speak are frozen in my throat. The kids are positively dumbfounded. You can see, they're just, they're kind of sneaking glances between me and Jared to see what's going to happen. And Jared's just smiling away. And the kids are thinking, well, is he going to kill Jared? Is God going to strike him with a bowl of lightning? Will the earth open up and swallow the whole class, me included? Well... Very calmly, I told Mr. Seeland that, uh, yes, my name was Bill, but around these parts, we like to call me Mr. Maroney because it's a matter of respect. Now, I want to keep you to keep in mind, this was not malicious on Jared's part. Jared had come in to possession of this little piece of knowledge that he decided was going to be fun to share in the class. So uh, he, he was just yanking my chain. Now, fast forward some uh, 10, 12, 13 years here. 
and now Mr. Sealand over here and I see each other on a very regular basis on our Monday night uh, at our Monday night college and career group. He's now a United States Marine. He has a very different perspective on respect. <laughs> <clears throat> Now, thankfully, he's still Jerry. Right underneath the surface is that little guy that I've known since he was this tall. But I have been blessed to know him and blessed to see his life over these many years. And I've been blessed to know many, many, many beautiful, wonderful children here at Harvest. And I would be poorer if I had lost the opportunity to know even one of them. They're special. They're all wonderful creations of God. So as I stand here this morning, God has laid it on my heart to speak with you about the sanctity of life, all human life. We're going to be looking at the word of the Lord from the book of Jeremiah this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, please open them to Jeremiah chapter 1. We're going to start in Jeremiah chapter 1, and we'll begin in verse number 4. We're going to be looking at verses 4 and 5 of the book of Jeremiah. Here's what they say. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Two very short little verses. The Iwana kids would be going, How come I don't have to memorize those two verses? Those are short. But in those two short verses, really right in verse number five, we see four compelling reasons why all life is precious and all life is precious to God. And that means pre-born, young, elderly, poor, old, homeless, the sick, the infirm, those who have challenges, blacks, whites, you name it, all lives are precious to God. And I want you to take a look at verse number four, and I want you to look at it closely. It says, The word of the Lord came to me saying, This is the word of the Lord. This is not Bill Maroney's opinion. This is not the opinion of an organization or of a political candidate. It is the infallible, perfect, unchanging word of God. And my charge as I stand before you this morning is to deliver that word accurately and unashamedly. Now there may be some of you here this morning for whom some of this will be hard to hear. But I want you to understand me, I'm not condemning you. We're all sinners in this place, every one of us. And we're not defined by our sin. This is God's house. And it's meant to be a place of grace and reconciliation, and healing, and forgiveness. According to God's word in Jeremiah 1.5, the first thing we need to recognize about the sanctity of life is that we were formed by God. It's very plain in this text. God says, before I formed you in the womb, God was the one who put you together in your mother's womb. That word there that's translated as formed is a Hebrew word meaning to squeeze something into a predetermined shape. It's often used to describe the creative work of a potter as he molds a piece of clay. 
And a potter, at least a good potter, doesn't simply take a piece of clay and throw it on the wheel, and whatever happens, happens. He has a predetermined product or shape in mind. She knows what she's envisioned and what's going to come from that piece of clay and very carefully and meticulously molds it into that vision till it conforms to his or her vision or, or what they have predetermined for it. That same word formed is also found in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. This is how it reads. Then the Lord formed the man of of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. I want you to remember up until this time God had simply spoken all of creation into being. He simply spoke and out of nothing came this creation. But when it came to man it was different. It says God formed man from the dust of the ground and he breathed life into the nostrils of man. It's a very personal, very intimate process versus all of the rest of God's creation. The same was true of Eve's creation. God caused a sleep to fall on Adam and he took one of Adam's ribs and he created woman. Again, a very special creation versus all others before them. Here's how David describes it in Psalm 139. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet... There was none of them. Listen to David's words. Knitted together, fearfully and wonderfully made, intricately woven. That same word that's translated intricately woven here in the book of Exodus, when God is giving the, uh, the uh, ideas or the, the things that needed to be put into the tabernacle, it is translated as embroidered, as God is giving these instructions. Now, I don't know much about embroidery, but here's, here's a picture that I'm led to uh, understand is embroidery. And uh, embroidery is a very painstakingly intricate, time-consuming, delicate work. See, our creation is not a haphazard biological process. It's the intricate, loving, perfect work of our all-powerful God. And not only was man created differently than the rest of, of God's creation, he was also the only part of God's creation that was made in his image. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. You see, God created us in his image. So what does it mean to be created in God's image? The Hebrew phrase here means image or shadow or likeness. It's not a, not a perfect copy. It's not an exact replica, more like a snapshot or, uh, you know, that's not quite uh, in focus or a facsimile of God. And take note, it doesn't say that you were created as God. We are not God, even though sometimes we act as though we are. 
but you do occupy a higher place in God's created order than all of the rest of his creation because you alone are imprinted with his image. But in what way are we like God? It's not a physical likeness because God is spirit and he has no physical body like man. However, when God did appear to people in the Old Testament, he did take on a form not unlike man. And this was the form he chose for us. So there is something special about the physical aspect of man versus the rest of creation. But that, that likeness to God really is, refers to the ways that we are inherently like the God who created us. The attributes that he has taken and imprinted on us that are not found in the rest of creation. You know, theologians have debated for years over what constitutes those similarities between us and God, and there's no definitive answer. But there are a few things that I want you to consider this morning as you ponder what aspects of God can be seen in you. Well, first of all, you are creative because God is creative. Genesis 1-1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. We know that God is creative. He created everything from his mind comes everything that we see. And you know what? We as humans are given creativity. We have the ability to create things. Artists make pictures with paint. Poets and writers and philosophers use words and ideas. Manufacturers make things with raw materials. A chef makes things with food. Every human has the capacity to make things to create because we are all made in the image of a very creative God. You are spiritual because God is spirit. Genesis 1-2, the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. See, folks, every human possesses spiritual aptitudes and capacities. We are more than the sum of our physical parts. Our spiritual nature, though it's unseen, is as real as our physical nature. You are spiritual because you were created with the image of a spiritual God. You communicate because God communicates. Genesis 1-3, God said, let there be light. God spoke, existence, spoke into existence his creation. He chose to speak. He didn't have to speak. And the human ability to think and reason and use language, both written and spoken, far surpasses the ability of any of the rest of God's creation. And that gift was bestowed upon us when a communicative God imprinted his image on us. You know what? You're also relational because God is relational. Genesis 1.26 and 2.18 say, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. It is not good for man to be alone. That phrase, let us make man in our image, reveals the usness in the very nature of God. We know that God is three in one. He is the Trinity. There is an usness with God, and he desires a personal relationship with us because he is a relational God. The very essence of God is relational, and that quality has been imprinted on us, and the capacity for relationship with God exists only in us amongst all of his creation. And you have a moral compass because God 
is a moral being. Genesis 2, 16 through 17 says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Folks, from the very beginning, God established moral laws to govern human behavior. And the Bible teaches us that those laws are written on human hearts and that they are universal. Deep down inside, we all have that moral compass that God put there. And it's put there because God imprinted his moral being on us. This list could go on and on, but the bottom line is that every human is created in the image of God. And that includes that newly conceived life in its mother's womb. It is not a blob of tissue. It is not a group of cells, as many would have you believe. It's a child. From the very moment of conception, it's a baby human created in the likeness of God Almighty, an image bearer of God, stamped with divine dignity and worthy of protection. And to kill that baby is to kill an image bearer of God. Please don't fall for the pro-choice propaganda that seeks to diminish those newly created lives by reducing them to a biological process, by referring to them as a fetus. It's a baby. It's a human being. It's not a random collection of cells. It's a person just like you. And the first thing any society does when it's going to mistreat a particular class of people is to dehumanize them. The Nazis did it. They referred to the Jews as subhumans so they didn't have to feel bad about what they were doing. Believe it or not, in, eight, in the uh, 1800s, there were actually theologians who espoused theories that blacks had no soul so that they could feel better about slavery. Imagine that, saying that a human being created by God had no soul. And people bought that lie. And now in the 21st century here in America, babies are referred to as blobs of tissue so that people can assuage their guilt for murdering human beings. They're not tissue. They're image bearers of God. And that's not only true of the pre-born. You are an image bearer of God. You were lovingly knit together in your mother's womb by God. God has chosen you to bear his image and imprinted you with his likeness. I want you to take a look at this picture up on the screen. Uh, some of you may recognize that as a Vincent van Gogh self-portrait. That thing uh, sold for $71.5 million. Now, I'm here to tell you I wouldn't hang that thing in my house. Um... <laughs> We've got, uh, we've got a guy in our, our college group, uh, Dan Budnick, who is, every time I see him, he's drawing something. Usually it's superheroes, people from the Bible, stuff like that. I would hang anything he drew before I put that up. But, but that's just me, okay? The bottom line here is that self-portrait of Vincent Van Gogh was nothing more than some canvas and oil paint, and it's worth $71 million dollars? Well, then how much more valuable is a living, breathing human being created by God himself in his image? And the answer is simple. It's priceless. Every single life from the moment of conception until the very last breath is priceless. And unfortunately, for 1.4 million children this year, 
that moment of conception and death are going to come all too close together. Each one a precious example of God's handiwork, lovingly, intricately knit together by him, callously destroyed by another image bearer of God. That newly formed human being, a baby is a human being. And God's word is extremely clear about the taking of a human life. Exodus 20, 13 from the Ten Commandments says, you shall not murder. Four simple words, very straightforward. No qualifiers, no unless. Just you shall not murder. And the Hebrew word used there covers causing human death by uh, carelessness or negligence as well. So it's, it's all-encompassing. There's no loophole here. Ending a life which God created is murder. And that includes a life that's still in its mother's womb. Since 1973, when Roe v. Wade became law, there have been nearly 59 million abortions here in the United States. That's 59 million creations of God that never got a chance to fulfill his plans for their lives. You know what? That's more than if you took and combined the current population of Louisiana, Kentucky, Oregon, Oklahoma, Connecticut, Iowa, Utah, Mississippi, Arkansas, Kansas, Nevada, New Mexico, Nebraska, West Virginia, Idaho, Hawaii, New Hampshire, Maine, Rhode Island, Montana, Delaware, South Dakota, North Dakota, Alaska, Vermont, and Wyoming. The combined population, every man, woman, and child of 26 of the United States is less than 59 million people. And you know what? The oldest of those babies would only be 42 years old today. As a country, we're aging, and we're aging because we're killing the future. Now, some of you are here this morning, and you may have been a party to this. You may have been involved in some way. As I said before, the purpose of what I'm sharing this morning is not to condemn you. This is God's house, and you need to find forgiveness and grace and healing here. But the full truth of God's word must be spoken here. And God says this is murder, plain and simple. And if abortion has been a part of your past, it just needs to be dealt with like every other sin. Seek forgiveness, repent, turn away from that sin. And then our gracious, loving, merciful God can begin healing some of that hurt that you've probably been carrying around with you for a very long time. Studies show that women who have aborted children have a 154% higher risk of suicide, 65% higher risk of clinical depression, 65% higher risk of post-traumatic disorder, a five-fold higher risk of drug and alcohol abuse, and most report guilt, grief, sleeping and eating disorders. Sadly, uh, that list goes on and on. But forgiveness and healing are waiting for you in the arms of a loving God. And that's true for all of our sin, no matter what it may be. In Psalm 51, David is crying out to God. He has sinned with Bathsheba, and he's brought about the death of her husband Uriah the Hittite. David has caused the death of an image bearer of God, and he's suffering greatly over his sin. This is what it says in Psalm 51, verses 1 and 2, and then 7 and 8. 
Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. David is seeking God's forgiveness and cleansing for his sin. He's asking God to restore his joy in the Lord. And we know from scripture that God honored that sincere request from David. And if you're struggling with pain or grief or sadness or guilt because of your sin, whatever it might be, God is faithful to forgive. And he'll restore your joy in him if you too seek him earnestly and ask his forgiveness. You know, perhaps you should take that 51st Psalm and read it aloud to the Lord. Make it your prayer to him. David says it so eloquently in I think it often applies to many of us. So scripture is very clear. We were all formed by God, but we're also all known by God. That's our second point. We are all known by God. Look again at verse number five. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. God is saying before I started that process of knitting you together in your mother's womb, I already knew you. And the word before is very important here. Revelation 13.8 says, And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. In Ephesians 1.3 and 4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. You see, God has known every single child that has ever been conceived or ever will be conceived since before he set the foundation of the world, before he created this earth or light or water or dry ground or plants and fish and birds and man, he already knew you. And understand what's being said here. I knew you, not I knew about you. The Hebrew word used here denotes that it's an intimate knowledge, not a general awareness. God's not saying, hmm, Bill Maroney, yep, that's a familiar name, but I can't really place him. See, God knows each and every one of us intimately. 1 Kings 8.39 says, Then here in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each whose heart you know according to all his ways, for you, you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind. God knows our hearts. Our motives are laid bare before him. Isaiah 45, 4. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. God knows us by name. He knows each and every one of his creation by name. You know, working with children, I know many of the kids here at Harvest by name. But as your, their parents, you might be a different story. Chances are good you're Noah's dad or Audrey's mom because as hard as I try, I don't know your name. I'm sure you have one. I'm almost confident everybody here has an actual name. But in my mind, you're so-and-so's dad or mom, unless I've 
actually managed to memorize your name. But I can't remember them all. But God, on the other hand, knows each and every one of you by name and has since before he laid the foundation of the earth. Psalm 139, 1 through 4. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Everything we do, everything we think, everything we say is personally known to God even before we do it or say it. God knows us perfectly. We should be awestruck by the height and depth of God's knowledge of us personally. And yes, there are times when we wish it wasn't so, when we wish we could keep something from God. There's nothing new in that. Adam and Eve tried. Cain tried. David tried. Doesn't work. God knows us perfectly. And we should be thankful for that. It's what makes it possible for him to know our every need before we ever have that need. To know our every need even when we don't know it or understand it. To be able to lead us and guide us in a perfect plan for our lives. It's how he manages to protect us, even from ourselves. So we can see that we were formed by God, and we are known by God, and now we're going to see that we have been set apart by God. Continuing in verse 5, it says, Before you were born, I set you apart. That's our third point. We've been set apart by God. God says, Before you were even born, I set you apart. Uh, Other translations may read sanctified or consecrated, but to sanctify something is to set it apart for a sacred purpose. You have been set apart by God for his purposes. He has set you apart. Long before Jeremiah ever knew God in a personal way or anything, really, God had chosen him and set him apart. And he's done the same thing with you. Before you were ever conceived, God already set you apart for his purposes. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, those good works there is talking about the sanctification process. And here again we see the word beforehand. God chose you and set you aside for these good works before you were ever conceived. The original Greek reads uh, literally, which God prepared in advance so that we might walk in them. And, and that talking of walking in something at, at this time in, in Paul's day talked about how you lived your life, about your entire lifestyle. In other words, the good works of verse 10 are not simply religious activities, scattered throughout an otherwise secular life. Rather, they're the good works encompassing the whole of the Christian and all that we do by God's grace and for God's purposes. In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he addresses them this way in 1 Corinthians 1-2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. It says, called to be together, I'm sorry, called to be saints together. Paul's saying, believers, God has set you apart to be his saints 
throughout the world. Saints aren't dead people who we're honoring for the good things that they did in their lives. Saints are the people of God set apart to serve him and for his purposes. And believer in Jesus, before he set the foundations of the earth, God chose you and he set you apart to be a saint, to serve him. And the question is, are you living your life in a fashion that's worthy of that calling? In you and through you, does the lost world around you see Jesus? Matthew 5, 13 through 16 says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You see, God's saints are set apart to be salt and light to the world. But Matthew's saying if you're not living as one set apart, you're going to lose your saltiness. Your light is going to be hidden, and then what good are you? He says you need to let your light shine so that others will see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. There's that term again, good works. Remember again that what's meant here is not random acts of Christian kindness. It's not serving in you know, the worship team or being a Sunday school teacher. It's instead the entire life of a believer that is focused on God and his purposes through his power and his grace. You've been set apart for a life that glorifies God and draws others to him. Don't miss that fact. It's your calling. It's your purpose. It's the answer to a very common question among millions of people. Why am I here? You know, I'd love to have all the money that's made by people writing books that purport to answer that question. Because all the while, the answer has been in only one book, God's Holy Scripture. You're here for God's purposes, to glorify him and for his good pleasure, period. And if you'll just focus on that truth, the rest of it falls into place very nicely. Your life and all life is precious because it belongs to God for his glory. Remember those 59 million babies that never got a chance to experience the life that God had planned for them? How much glory have we robbed from God? How much salt and light is this world missing because of the selfishness of man? How much poorer are we as a people because these precious creations of God were stolen from us before they ever saw the light of day? Life is sacred because we are formed by God. We are known by God. We have been set apart by God. And we've been appointed by God. That's our fourth point this morning. We've been appointed by God. At the end of verse 5, God tells Jeremiah, I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. So before he was ever conceived, before the foundations of the earth, God appointed Jeremiah as his prophet. And Jeremiah at that time may well have been thinking, oh, good. Because Jeremiah, his dad, his granddad, they'd both been priests, and that was a very well-respected and highly honored position. Prophets, on the other hand, were often not the people's favorite because when they showed up, they generally had a message from God that was going to be hard to hear. 
Jeremiah would go on to spend 40 years focusing on God's message of the sinfulness and coming judgment for the nation of Israel. Not the sort of thing that inspires people to show, throw a party when you show up. But you know what? Jeremiah didn't run from that calling because he had been appointed by God. The King James Version reads ordained. It means to be officially appointed to a public ministry or office. Two weeks ago as a church body, we appointed 10 new deacons, men of God, uh, to serve here in this church. They were officially appointed to that office right here in this room. Now, many of you may say, well, I haven't been appointed by God to any public ministry or office, so this part doesn't apply to me. To which I say, au contraire. Notice the French? That's for you people who are appalled that I hated the Van Gogh picture. <laughs> Not a total infidel. It's also all the French I know. 1 Peter 2.5 says, You yourselves, like living stones, are built up as a, sacri- uh, as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. As one who's put their faith in Christ, you have been appointed by God as a believer priest. You've been consecrated or set apart by God, cleansed by the blood of Christ, and appointed a priest to offer spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to him. And being a believer priest involves both opportunity and responsibility. In the Old Testament, a priest had a special place in the worship of God. The priests were responsible for certain aspects of worship, particularly the sacrifice of animals. And they served as mediators between the people and God. And the high priest, the head priest, he was, he was the only one who could enter the Holy of Holies in the Jewish temple. That especially sacred place that was separated from the rest of the temple and the other priests and the worshipers by a great curtain or veil. And with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, all that changed. No longer is the sacrifice of animals appropriate. Because Christ, the Lamb of God, has given himself as a sacrifice for sin. It's a once and for all act. And at the crucifixion of Jesus, the great veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Indicating that Jesus, the great high priest, now mediated between God and mankind. No longer were the priests of the Old Testament variety needed. Indeed, All who believe in Jesus become priests with direct access to God. Human mediators are no longer needed. We can go directly to God in prayer, in confession, in praise, in worship. But being a believer priest also carries a responsibility. In the Old Testament, a priest, in a sense, represented God to the people. And today, as believers, we have a responsibility to share our knowledge of God with other persons both in word and in deed. The believer priest has a responsibility to bear witness to God's love as shown in Jesus Christ and to demonstrate God's love by ministering to people in Christ's name. And although animal sacrifices are no longer necessary, you, as a follower of Christ, as a believer priest in the new covenant, you are to make spiritual sacrifices to God. Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
the spiritual sacrifice, uh, sacrifice necessitates us voluntarily surrendering to the service of God. It means that we're to present all of ourselves to his service. Our bodies with all of its members and powers, eyes, ear, mouth, tongue, hands and feet, as well as all that we have, all that we are, our gifts, our time, our talents, our resources, all are a part of the living sacrifice commanded to us as believer priests in God. Just as God appointed Jeremiah to be a prophet, he has appointed you, follower of Jesus, to be a believer priest. You see, all life is sacred, and we need to remember that. We need to remember what God tells us in Jeremiah 1.5. We are all formed by God. We are all known by God. We've all been set apart by God, and we've all been appointed by God. And on this Sanctity of Life Month, it's important for us to remember that these truths apply to every human being, including the newly conceived. As believer priests, we have to take a, take a stand for the unborn. Those innocent lives of the most helpless of God's creation are being murdered every week right up the street here in Aurora. As Pastor Matt shared earlier during the announcements, we encourage you to take a stand for life. Harvest has folks praying and doing sidewalk counseling in front of Planned Parenthood on the second and fourth Fridays and Saturdays every month. And if that doesn't fit your schedule, just find another time. You can go there anytime. Pray for those babies. Pray for those moms. And of course, there's many other ways you can take a stand for life. Those baby bottles... Uh, that you pick up as you leave the sanctuary this morning. They help support the PIC where women are encouraged to choose life for their babies. Voting for only pro-life candidates is very important. Even if you think that person isn't in a position to make a decision or cast a vote that has anything to do with their, their stand on the sanctity of life, vote only for pro-life candidates. We need to make changes in this government. And there are many pro-life organizations that need financial support. And of course, any opportunity that arises for you to be outspokenly and unashamedly pro-life, you need to do it. Because the God you serve most certainly is pro-life. 